Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we look at what some of the big events of the past week mean for the US economy, markets and the globe from the extraordinary scenes in Russia of an abortive military mutiny to the historic visit by Prime Minister Modi of India to the United States. We'll discuss how these and other developments may be reshaping China's role and posture on the global stage as an export-oriented economy and how the sweeping developments could signal new opportunities for the United States. We'll also look at what could go wrong and the internal pressures facing China from an aging population to an economy struggling with debt and not rebounding as many had anticipated after the COVID-19 lockdowns. Matt Van Alstyne says China's domestic problems are huge. Dick Beauvais has more analysis for us on demographic trends across the globe, with many national populations continuing to steadily shrink. The sharp decline in US fertility rates is also evident, with rates of immigration to the United States offsetting overall population declines in recent years. The US money supply as a percent of the global money supply has been plunging from a high of nearly 90% in the early 1950s to some 20% in recent years. According to data from Dick, what does that mean for the US dollar's position as the global reserve currency? We'll look at that and lots more. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. We're on episode 75. Dick and Matt, you're very welcome. We've just come off some momentous and extraordinary days over the weekend in Russia, an attempted coup apparently, and we'll see where that uh, shakes out. And then prior to that, of course, we had Anthony Blinken meeting with his Chinese counterparts and the uh, president of the Supreme Leader of China, Xi Jinping. And if we put them all together, I wonder what does that equate to because they're tied at the hip, at least symbolically, politically and economically. Dick and Matt, what's your thoughts? Well, I um, I actually did. Uh, that was my major when I was at Columbia, which is political science. And I've always tried to keep uh, keep up on, on it. Uh, 
whether it's reading foreign affairs or reading uh, histories of nations or what have you, uh, because I, you know, I love the subject. And I have a feeling that uh, I, I don't have a clue as to what's going to go on in Russia. You know, I, I can't imagine Putin losing power, but um, I, I do think China really took a major hit last week. And I think uh, when you start looking at uh, what's going on in the South China Seas, uh, where China is trying to, you know, indicate its dominance, I'd say that uh, it's 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 raised an awful lot of uh, hostility to the country, and, and it's now ha- going to have to deal with it. Uh, and, and if you don't object, I'd kind of like to talk, you know, country by country. Obviously, the South Koreans, you know, are, are tied at the hip to the United States, and Taiwan is tied to the hip to the United States, and that that represents a problem, uh, you know, for China, but, you know, not a major problem. What is a major problem is Japan now has been enlivened uh, to the point where it is now promising to build uh, hypersonic missiles, you know, uh, attack drones, uh, jet planes, and, and who knows what it intends to put on those things. But, you know, Japan is no longer... Uh, only willing to build defensive military uh, uh, items or equipment, it now is, uh, you know, uh, the, the diet or whatever you call it in Japan is now in a position where it wants to build uh, n- numerous offensive weapons. Um, if, you, if you look around down the Philippines, you know, when Duterte was the uh, head of the Philippine government, he uh, made overtures to China, which, uh, you know, it appeared that, uh, you know, first he kicked the United States out of the Philippines, you know, they they had to close the huge base that has been there for, you know, uh, almost 100 years. And, you know, he, he opened up uh, overtures, as I say, to China to do business with China. But now uh, the Marcos family is back in control. And, and I don't know, the United States may not have been friendly to the Marcos uh, for a period, but uh, they've now invited the United States back, you know, to put, uh, you know, a military base in, in uh, the Philippines, in addition to which uh, the Philippines uh, are among a number of nations that are competing with with, with uh, China for space in the South China Sea. They don't, Japan is, is fighting over the islands that uh, the, the uh, Chinese are building there. The, the Philippines are, are, are upset over the uh, incursions that China has made into what it consists to be its sea space. Vietnam, of all places, a country where, you know, you would think that there's no way in hell that that country is ever going to associate itself with the United States. But Vietnam has, uh, for at least two millennium, you know, for thousands of years, been fighting, uh, you know, China. And at the present time, you know, the two countries have claims to each other's physical territory. And you know, the, the fear in Vietnam in the last couple of years is that they were going to have to go to war with China over, you know, the South China Sea uh, territory. So they, they're they're not happy with the country. Indonesia. Um, Indonesia is the, the fourth largest population in the world, but it's the largest Muslim country in the world. Now, going way back in history, when Sukarno was head of Indonesia, again, they opened up their uh, alignment with China and were very close to China. But Suharto came in and he, you know, came back in the direction of the of the uh, United States. And now the Chinese are taking the Muslims in China and they're they're pushing them out of the country. They're they're 
actually uh you know taking uh steps which which, which is resulting in the death of, of of muslims they've got a million Uyghurs, i guess that's how you pronounce it in some type of uh you know a jail or concentration camps so it's hard to believe that uh, indonesia given its huge as i say it's the largest muslim country in the world is going to be happy with what china is doing in in that area but but the, the, the biggest coup of all is india um in my view, India has always thought that the United States was part of Britain. They hate Britain and they hated the United States. I mean, the Nehru's, uh, uh, the Gandhi's, you know, it doesn't matter who the hell they were. They were always very pro-Russian, very anti-U.S. They can't be anti-U.S. anymore because they are in military confrontations, uh, which aren't huge, but people are being killed on the border between China and India. And now India comes to the United States and we take this guy Modi, who, you know, in my view is the same as, as Xi Jinping, but uh, we take him and, and have him speak to Congress. So if, if you take a look at, you know, all around China, you know, south, north, west, you know, east, west, you know, you, you've got uh, hostile nations. And then, you know, this thing happens in Russia which, you know, it's got to have shaken Xi Jinping much more than it shook Putin because, you know, what if he had some nut on the, his northern border who now was the largest nuclear power, it is the, Russia's the largest nuclear power in the world, you know, it, it, and he has him on his northern border and he's not, you know, signed any, uh, you know, friendship uh, forever, you know, relationship with this guy. He has no idea what this guy is going to do. Uh, so China, you know, from a political situation is ringed, is has set off all of its neighbors to be anti-Chinese. You know, it, the United States is not the only one claiming rights to the South China Sea. All these countries are. And then if, I apologize, we go on to the economics of China, it was driven by exports and real estate. And its exports to the United States are now declining. And its real estate can't be revivified because there's too much empty real estate in China to say it's going to turn around and kick the economy of China going forward. So it has it has that particular problem, which which is which is big. And because of the things that they're doing to companies that are there, I mean, if you do a survey, you know, the United States will survey its its consumer, uh, you know, uh, people, you know, the, the consumers to determine how to create the best products to sell. If you do that in China, you can be thrown in jail, uh, and you can be thrown in jail for decades because you are now a spy trying to collect information. So they, they've hampered the ability of uh, not just American companies, but all companies which are non-Chinese for operating in China. So I think the country has gone too far and it now recognizes that it's gone too far and it's going to start pulling back. And I think that's very positive for the United States. I think it's very positive for the U.S. economy. I think there's a lot of positive stuff that will come out of it. We are not the only country which China is pushing around or attempting to push around at this point. It's just fascinating me how this thing has shifted or shifting. I, I think one of the things that we learned over the weekend is there is no one out there that knows anything. And you can't trust anything you read in the papers. You can't trust any official government sources. Because when, when it first seemed like there was going to be a, a coup attempt, you know, within hours, there were these New York Times and Washington Post articles, which seemed to be, you know, tapped into the, the CIA or whoever is running the country. 
and we're talking about how oh we've been expecting this for weeks this is the you know this is the the result of gently laid plans and we're going to have a long you know a drawn out civil war and and Ukraine will be able to take advantage of this and kick Russia out once and for all and you know 5 minutes later there's this peace deal the the coup is off the the leader of Wagner's moving to Belarus and all these articles that claimed that the Americans knew, you know, the American government knew exactly what was happening in Russia were deemed false before they even made it to their printing edition. And, you know, it, it it's amazing to me how many armchair, I mean, we're doing the same thing. We're arm, armchair quarterbacking what's going on around the world. But, the, you know, the official mouthpieces of the U.S. government were, one, stunned, apparently, by Wagner's um, seizure of Rosneft and eventually being able to get as close to Moscow as they did without being apparently bombed by what they perceived to be a competent air force. So either there's no competent air force or for some reason, the air force chose to let Wagner get that close to Moscow or, you know, our government just doesn't know what's going on. They like to pretend they do when they, when they leak to to the press. And I, I have that in the back of my mind when we talk about these other countries like China and Japan and you know, Indonesia and what they think about America, because we're fed information through a filtering system that may not be filtering the right information. Um, you know, you talk about Japan wanting to change their defense stance from defensive only to maybe offensive or more aggressive military. Well, is that because they're actually worried about China? Or if I were in Japan, I would have watched what happened in Afghanistan and how awful our leadership is at effectuating a war. And, you know, you're sitting there, you're, you're under the blanket of America's um, protection under their you know, nuclear uh, uh, umbrella. And also you have U.S. military bases, but you have this doubt in the back of your mind. You're just kind of like, is America going to really be there if China takes one of our smaller islands way in the south? You know, China Sea that is kind of in a disputed island and it's not populated and, you know, we want to go to war. Well, are we going to rely on America? Really? I think it, I think it could be not a, a necessarily just China related. It could be American related. But you know, you look at any any prediction we have about the last five years would have been wrong on any topic we're talking about in my mind because the consensus was that um, Kabul would would fight and the Taliban probably would ultimately win, but it would not happen before the winter certainly and you and then you'd have all winter to get ready and build the defenses and then you'd have a summer season of fighting and who knows who would win instead the taliban took over in about four or five minutes including while america was still there and then the next consensus view was that russia you know would if they didn't get to kiev and conquer kiev in you know three or four days it would just be five or six days if you know traffic was bad or whatever and you know they couldn't even cross one river um so I, I, I kind of get nervous when we when we have these big views of like what's happening in other countries. And China is the most dependent country on exports in the world. They are 100% dependent on free trade and access to, to the oceans, access to seas. And if they don't have exports, they don't have money. If they don't have money, they don't have an economy. You know, when when the, when Xi suddenly reopened China and everyone was expecting this GDP boom because of the reopening and it didn't happen, you know, now you start seeing all the explanations that there's no real internal demand. And without internal demand, they become more dependent on exports. 
And it becomes this recursive feedback loop. And so the idea that China would somehow benefit um, from a war in their air in their region when they're basically surrounded by U.S. bases in Korea, Japan, Philippines, Guam, um, Marshall Islands. Uh, you know, you, you can I, I'm probably missing 30 or 40 Navy and Air Force bases that we have in that region. And they're they're not going to be able to survive an embargo or the closing off of shipping lanes because they'll be out of money. And if, if they're going to rely on Putin, who's their you know neighbor and, and supposed lifetime friend to come in and help them, well, look how great Ukraine's going. So I, I feel like there's a lot of areas where people want, I feel like there's more demand for world changing events than there is supply because a lot of this is just almost unrealistic. Like, that, that China would basically give up its entire country and its entire economy for to, to go and get Taiwan when they can probably get Taiwan by just waiting them out. Five or 10, 15, 20 years from now, China's going to be so much richer than Taiwan if you can, if the trends continue that Taiwan Taiwanese citizens will want to be enveloped in that, in my mind. And, and maybe not want is the right word, but like there is a tipping point. Like there was in Hong Kong. You had Ukraine, you know, United Kingdom leave. Um, a lot of the citizens left, and over uh, multi multi decades, the demographics changed to where there's less resistance to the China's imposition because the old Hong Kong was gone. And I think the same thing could happen in Taiwan. So why would they risk everything for uh, a kinetic war when they can probably get it if they just are patient? That's exactly my point. That's my whole point. Oh. My whole point is that uh, China has got to back off. That China is not going to be aggressive because there are too many forces arrayed against the country. And therefore, the country, given what, what I agree you're saying, needs exports, needs you know inflows of cash from outside sources, that China is moving in the exact, is now going to move in exact opposite direction. It's going to ease off in terms of its confrontation. It's going to be seeking relationships uh, again with other countries. It's going to be attempting to increase trade because it has no choice. In other words, instead of seeing this monolithic country, which is, you know, starting fights with the Philippines and Vietnam and, you know, going around Taiwan or, or letting uh, North Korea shoot missiles over Japan, what I'm saying is that era, in my view, is coming to an end and we're going to open up to a more, if you will, congenial atmosphere around China because China cannot go it alone and China cannot start trouble with all of its neighbors the way it's already has. And you're exactly correct. I don't think anybody has a clue as to what's going on in Russia. I, I don't. I, everything that we've heard has been ridiculous, as you said. Uh, but in the case of China, that, that that's where I think you can see a, a meaningful change, which is going to open that country to the rest of the world again, because it has no choice. It simply has no choice. Speaking of the events of the past week, what was remarkable was the information vacuum which you referred to um matt i mean they were recycling a lot of the news over and over and they were bringing on these pundits and analysts to speculate endlessly so it's what we don't know that maybe is the most bothersome what is hidden there um speaking of china i mean there's a lot of these u.s companies reassessing their operations in china uh, in recent days, we heard about Apple, Chipmaker, TSMC4, Mazda, and several others. But yet, Apple, as one example, still needs uh, Chinese companies to make its um, 
Vision Pro headset. It's using component parts out of China. So I'm wondering how we can separate ourselves more from China and become more independent here in America, as you've spoken about in the past, Dick, I mean, bringing manufacturing back. And that's where a lot of this is clearly headed to. Yeah, well, we are attempting to bring manufacturing back, but we're also, I I can't believe it, uh, given, you know, when I grew up, um, you know, we are moving it to Vietnam. We're moving it, we're we're looking at moving all sorts of stuff into India. Uh, You know, we, you know, the, the, the impact that China has made on everyone, not just the United States, but all of its neighbors is such that everybody is now, I mean, Mary Barra, the, the head of General Motors, was interviewed on CNBC this morning. And, and what she said, you know, is what all these other countries, companies, in my view, are thinking. And that is, we've become too reliant on single sources of, uh, if you will, goods or materials, what have you, and we've got to diversify more. And, you know, part of that diversification hopefully is in the United States, but a lot of that diversification is into all of these countries that, you know, have labor costs similar to China, uh, where, you know, this this uh, expertise can be built up. I mean, India, uh, it, it's just amazing that that country, you know, uh, is is speaking to the Congress of the United States, given the history of the country since it won its independence back in the late 1940s. Um, and uh, essentially, they have to. Uh, Russians need all of their military equipment to fight in, you know, Ukraine, and they're not supplying India with the military equipment it needs to protect itself against the Chinese. So they may hate us. They may have no change in their feeling to us, but they have real needs to to work with us as we have real needs to work with them. I mean, the Philippines, I mean, if under Duterte, you would think that, you know, the the United States was was the worst country in the world, uh, you know, based upon, you know, all of the... uh, overtures he made to get closer to China. And now they're worried about, you know, their ships, you know, in what they consider to be the Philippine portion of the South China Sea, while the the Chinese, you know, seem to want a chunk of of their area. Chinese seem to want a chunk of, uh, you know, the the site was it Saikaku Islands? Uh, you, you know, that Japan claims mm-hmm. is its own. It, that China wants a chunk of Vietnam. You know, China can't do this anymore. I think, I think that this week proved to China it can't do this anymore and that China is, is going to open up to a much more congenial relationship with the United States. And it's going to work hard to rebuild the Belt and Road, you know, initiative, which is falling apart, uh, to, to, you know, get its trade operation in, in, in concert because the Chinese economy is not rebounding. And that is a major problem for Xi Jinping because, you know, whether he's a dictator or not a dictator, that he won't stay in power if the Chinese economy doesn't rebound. So it isn't going to be rebound if he continues the policies that he's instituted over the last uh, you know decade. So again, I think all this stuff is very positive. I think it's uh, it's going to be very good for the United States. I think it's going to be very good for China. I think it's going to be very good for all the countries that now can you know think about trading with China. You know, uh, and and you know, I think everybody benefits by it if China just backs off. And I think they're de- they're definitely going to do that. I I agree that I think I, maybe I don't agree. When, when Henry Kissinger a couple of weeks ago was talking about what he thinks the strategy should be for America and China, 
he basically said what I think a lot of people think is reality anyway, which is that America and China need to assign uh, the, the presidents, the respective presidents need to assign a point person, a czar type of person to be the, you know, not a diplomat, but someone behind the scenes, someone who's basically unofficially the, you know, able to speak on behalf of their countries and agree step one, you know, there will be no war and step two uh, through these back channels, we will work out any issue. And that allows for step three, which is for Biden and Xi to continue to publicly, you know, hype up the, 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 the tensions because it's good for their domestic politics. It, you know, it made me wonder if that's exactly how the world has been working because you're right. It's, it's beyond insane to think that the two largest trading partners in the world, China and the United States, would want to have a kinetic war where the price of the war, in addition to the lost economic productivity, would cripple the entire world. I mean, we're talking, you would have, a, 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 it, it would change everything. It would be the, probably the biggest war in history and, and might possibly be the biggest economic change to a world that's relatively wealthy. I mean, you look at the the, the list of people that are living on you know less than a dollar a year every year, and it's it at one point you know 30 or 40 years ago it was 25 30 percent of the globe, and now it's sub you know 10 percent or five percent. You know when you when you hear things like what you just said about um, Apple, and then I think the Raytheon CEO was up there saying that we can de-risk but we cannot decouple if we had to leave China. Um, there's no alternative. You know, we get 95% of our earth materials and metals processed in China. And, you know, like if Raytheon, our number one defense contractor is dependent on China, it sure tells you how much decoupling would have to happen and and how crippling it would be to the global economy for these two countries to to have conflict. And and so it, it, it feels like the official word of tensions is almost a distraction just to make sure that domestic priorities are, I guess, remain priorities. Yeah, well, I think I think what you said, Kissinger says, and what you believe is correct. You know, we, we and, and that's what I'm saying, it's going to be very positive, because we're going, we're going in the direction that you want, and that uh, Kissinger is saying, we should go. I think that that's what developed this week, uh, that, that it became very, uh, I think, apparent that these are the things that, uh, you know, got to happen and are going to happen. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that things that must happen do happen, as opposed to all this other stuff, which is frivolous uh, around the edges. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think this was a big plus this week. Um, and, yeah. and that's not what people were focusing on. They were focusing on the stupidity in Russia. And who knows? how stupid the Russians can get. I mean, but they are trying hard to push it at every limit. But I mean, I, I sent, uh, I sent uh, you two guys something over the weekend uh, showing the population of the 23 nations that were once part of the Soviet new empire or the Soviet union. And what, what I noticed, um, and I've been noticing, obviously, for decades, uh, is that if you segregate the nations that, uh, you know, uh, the Soviet Union had conquered into two groups, those that are in the European sector and those that are in the Asian sector, uh, all of the Asian countries are growing their populations. All of the European countries are losing population. All of the Asian countries uh, not only are growing their populations, but ex-China and Japan, 
but Soviet Union didn't conquer the two of them, so they're not on the list. So, but but all of these other countries, you know, that were part of the Soviet Union are growing in population, and they're, they're the biggest countries in the world in terms of population. China is well, India is now, I guess, they're claiming number one. China is number two. We're number three. Indonesia is number four. You know, and, and as you go on down the list, you know, you're not finding the biggest countries in the world sitting in the Western world. So that's where economic development is going to be. That's where, you know, the, the vibrant economies are going to be. And that's where we have to be involved on a peaceful, proactive trade, you know, industrial, whatever you want to call it, basis. And I think that we will be. I think that's exactly what we'll do. Um, I think that's what American companies have tried to do by moving into China. And I think that's what they're going to be doing as they, they spread out their uh, largesse, if you will, among multiple countries in, in, in that region. I'm going to pick you up, Dick, on China, because there's a lot of hysteria. And depending on who you listen to, it's regarded as America's number one foreign policy threat or policy issue. You hear all these stories about intellectual property theft, mass scale spying going on, and you simply cannot trust the Communist Party of China. So that's one consideration. Do you see that changing? You seem to be suggesting that they're they're going to become nice people all of a sudden in regards to that whole approach. I think what Matt just said is correct. You have political needs in your country to uh, maintain this, uh, if you will, uh, defense, uh, what have you, position. But I, I just think that the what Matt says is also correct that, you know, basically the need of these countries for each other is so huge. And the need for the whole South China group of countries, uh, South China Sea group of countries to work together is so huge that no one is going to be insane enough to uh, start, you know, a conflict over it. And and I think that, you know, the, the, the uh, if you will, recognition is growing that maybe, you know, Everybody can do this defense spy thing. They can do what they're going to do, but we got to work together uh, because if we don't work together, we cannot grow, you know, every one of these nations. And, and I think each nation understands this. You cannot grow all of these nations if instead of working together to grow, you know, the, 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 the economy in Asia, you're spending all your time fighting with each other. I, I don't think I don't think we're going to go in that direction. If the Chinese economy um, tumbles further, there's youth unemployment of 20% at the moment. Its consumer uh, spending is weak, apparently. Um, and there's a lot of internal um, tensions and it loses some of its manufacturing base. Could that exacerbate some of these very tensions you're saying we're trying to dissipate or we're trying to ameliorate? Well, you can do go in one of two directions, right? You can say, okay, you know, if we go to war, we'll put all these people to work and we'll get all this defense production and we'll get rid of all this excess unemployment. Uh, or you can say, now's time to, to, uh, you know, rebuild our, our, you know, capital flows with the rest of the world, rebuild our manufacturing capability with the rest of the world. I mean, Matt last week said that uh, world trade, you know, is far preferable to any of the other options. And, and of course, that's correct. And I think 
I think, therefore, that these tensions are going to ease, not exacerbate. And I think that if China wants to put these unemployed people to work, they better start producing more goods that they can sell in Japan or Indonesia or India, as opposed to thinking about, you know, taking a big chunk of the South China Sea, which is just absurd. It is, it's no, there's no need for it. The need is to put these people to work. The need is not to grab a chunk of the South China Sea. And I think they've been trying to grab a chunk of the South China Sea. Now they're going to start trying to put these people to work. So, I, again, I, I think these developments are very positive. I, uh, by I, the I way, also... Henry Kissinger just celebrated his 100th birthday recently. What a great guy. I'm sure, I think there a lot of people in Laos and Vietnam would dispute that. I think um, so. <laughs> um, going back to China, I mean, I, I say this a lot, I mean, demography is destiny, and they have a massive problem demographically. And, you know, I, I wonder if some of this, like, information that you hear about, you know, first off, the Belt and Road Initiative is finally biting them in the butt, because countries that um, can't pay back their debts, you know, are 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 stuck in a situation where the IMF, the Western version of um, of the Belt and Road funding, is not going to go in. You know, you look at like Sri Lanka and um, Pakistan, and the IMF is like, we're not going to lend you money so you can pay back China. And so China is now stuck in an area where, you know, they they believed, I think, I think Dick's theory has been that they they wanted to actually own the assets, hmm. um, like ports and airports and stuff like that. But what, what I've been reading is that they don't necessarily know how to monetize that. And owning something in a faraway land requires a lot of the types of materials that they and, and people to go and, and sit there and enforce everything. You, you have to have an enforcement mechanism. And they're in a spot where they kind of just want their money back, I think. And the, and now there's no help from the Western world um, because you know no one's going to, since you, when you lend outside of the system, outside of the IMF, the IMF isn't excited to go in and, and, and save the the dumb lender. And you know, I'm not trying to call China a dumb. I'm just saying when you when you when you lend to someone who doesn't pay you back, you made a bad loan. And I think they're they're learning that buying friends isn't working because you know I talk about this a lot that America has an immigration problem for a reason. China does not have an immigration problem for a reason. And they have a a a massive, you know, accelerated urbanization that's slowly backfiring on them because, you know, the youth are one, there's 130 males to all 100 females in, in the ages between 20 and 30 in China. And with youth unemployment around 20%, as, as John noted, you have a lot of males who are living at home unemployed and unable to be even a productive, happy person because they're unemployed. They have no dating prospects. They have no shot of, of reproduction. And, and you have a country that has overbuilt, as Dick has mentioned a lot, overbuilt on housing and real estate and have, you know, lots of empty lots and unfinished buildings and, and, you know, the, the crushing debts of the, the local governments is, is become this massive feedback loop. And unemployment prospects, debt, uh, inability to get dates, you know, accelerates the um, the evolution. Uh, sorry, not the evolution. The uh, the demographic problem, and so all this outward expansion of China is, in some ways, the same thing that Kissinger was saying is covering up domestic problems because China's domestic problems are huge. 
And, you know, a war won't fix that. A war might just exacerbate it. I guess when I'm sitting here thinking about it, though, if, if you need to get homeless, uh, not homeless, but, you know, young men who are living in their parents' basements out and productive, I guess you could draft them. Yeah, well, but the British Empire, every study that's ever been done of it uh, concerning its economic feasibility has come back with the uh, fact that the British lost money on their empire. It wasn't a profitable enterprise. Um, and, and the Americans were smarter with their empire in that they didn't capture anybody. They they just tried to control their their uh, governments and they tried to control, you know, their, their economies. Uh, and, and that made more sense until it didn't <laughs> and we're not making money on it either so so the net effect is um the solution always comes back to you know you know you've got to have productivity you've got to have economic growth and you don't get it by conquering other countries you don't get it by lending other countries a lot of money you get it by developing uh ai you develop you get it by you know your technology by your by your productivity and you know, at, at the heart i mean i think unless all these leaders these dictators you know don't understand it that uh, they know that that's true you got to get your economy going that is the core to success uh n no matter what the country is where it is what the economic system is etc the economy has got to work well, of course, Putin has been trying to rebuild his empire, the British lost theirs. There's an interesting um, footnote in history, an interesting parallel, actually. The British, during Ireland's War of Independence, sent in its own kind of mercenary group to quell uh, the locals in the War of Independence. Um, they were recruited because they ran out of army people, and they were this group was noted for its brutality. So I, I sort of think of the Wagner group in the Ukraine been employed by Putin, but his empire disappeared. He's trying to recreate it. But I think in the, in the British case, that was sort of foreshadowing the decline of the British Empire. Yeah, well, obviously, the, the British Empire didn't work. I mean, Gandhi, when he first took over in India, his his vision was that the two countries should merge and they should create one parliament which would be equally populated by indians and by the british and the british totally rejected that concept altogether and they forced gandhi into a position of opposition which he he did not want gandhi was not looking for separating india from uh, britain he was looking at merging india with britain and maybe that's why you know number one people in india hate gandhi now uh, and, and and number two you know that the british it didn't work even with the united states the the, the united states wanted uh, and thought it was an inclusive situation that the, you know that the colonies and britain were the same country the british didn't think that and and that's what ruined you know the british ultimately ruined the british empire they couldn't control everything from london they had to be inclusive and they were not and um you know the, the situation in ireland it can only be described as a terrible disaster you know what, what happened there was unbelievable um you know 1848 will never be forgotten by any irishman anywhere um not even John Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's a little before my time, but I always remember the stories for sure growing up and, and the famous, infamous British mercenaries, the Black and Tans. By the way, this is not an anti-British tirade. We have many friends <laughs> who live over in the UK, so we've got to be careful yeah. here too. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely not an anti. We're just trying to talk about structures, what works and what doesn't work. Empires don't work, all right? Uh, they ultimately collapse on themselves. Uh, growing economies do work. And, and, and if leaders understand that, they won't be looking for empires. They'll be looking for what they can do to uh, vitalize their economies. So in light of the events of, of the, the weekend, Dick and Matt, and then Blinken's uh, meeting over in China and so on, and how things are changing, how the deck has been rearranged, what what does this mean in the, in the short and medium term for investors, for money, for commodities, for stocks? Does it change the equation? You seem much more bullish on American now, Dick. And yeah, no, so I'm wondering think, how it all it plays out. Yeah, no, I do think it changes the equation. And I do think it changes the equation in a positive fashion. Because if we're talking about, you know, opening up the world economy again, uh, you know, of going back to free trade or something that is closer to free trade again, that can only benefit us. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I do think it, uh, I think it's much more positive. I mean, unfortunately, I'm stuck, you know, uh, you know, following financial companies and, and banks, and they're on the wrong end of the stick here. Uh, you know, the, the, the other end, which is productivity, manufacturing, etc. That's the right end of the stick. But uh, I do think that uh, th these are positive developments economically. And I do think uh, that we will benefit economically from what's going on if we continue to follow this path. If, if we're going to get all bogged down in Russia's stupidity, then it, it's different. But I don't, I think the Chinese are way too smart to let that happen to them. I think uh, we're, we're way too smart to let that happen to us. So uh, I, I feel much more positive, if you will, this week than I felt last week. All right. It's a, uh, and it's not because, you know, Putin may go or stay. Uh, I don't care. It doesn't matter because it, Prigozhin was not trying to take over Russia so he could make life easier in the Ukraine. He was trying to take over Russia so he could crush the Ukraine. So, you know, uh, I mean, they're just crazies, right? Uh, and they don't realize, you know, if, if you've got the largest country in the world with the largest man, you know, landmass of any other country in the world by a, by a great, great, uh, you know, amount, and you are sitting on, you know, this enormous amount of, of uh, you know, raw material wealth. Why the hell are you spending your time trying to conquer Ukraine when if you just concentrated on what you have and develop it and develop your technology and develop, you know, the Russians are very intelligent people. Why are you not doing that? Which would benefit everybody in your country, make you more powerful, instead of you, you sending troops into you know the Ukraine to get killed. What what kind of stupidity is that? It's it's it, it is mind-boggling that these Russian leaders are so so unmindful of what works and what doesn't, and and we know the reason. The reason is because the, the, the uh, Leningrad oligarchy, which controls Russia, and and I read at least three books now which which you know describe one is called putin's people which i strongly recommend um that leningrad oligarchy controls russia and they they are they've got all the money flows in russia moving 
towards them and that money is not being reinvested in the tremendous opportunities that exist in, in developing Russia. It's being invested in boats in Switzerland, in London, and in, in investments in the West. I mean, if these writers are correct. And, and if that's the case, you know, they don't get it. They just don't get it. Their, their, their ability, their demand for power, for money, for control is overwhelming their rational thinking about where money, power, and control comes from. It doesn't come from controlling, you know, Russia and controlling the Ukraine and controlling someplace else. It comes from developing what's there. And in the case of Russia, what is there is phenomenal. Uh, and, and they're just not developing it. Russia has the same thing. I mean, I'll, I'll keep harping on it. They have a demographic problem. Yes. You know, the, 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 you have an aging workforce. The, I think the reproductive rate, I, I, want, I should probably look it up, but I thought it was around 0.8, um, which is, you know, a, a, a hundred years, you're not going to have a, a Russian population anymore if that stays continuing. So they have a lot of internal problems that are not, you know, that are, that are not being addressed because of these foreign follies, I guess. Yeah, well, if they were, if they're, if the economy, I mean, they're, they're supposedly by 2050 going to be more people in Egypt than there are in Russia. And Egypt has none of the, uh, if you will, advantages, you know, to building its economy the way the Russians do. So the people in Egypt would be living in Russia if Russia would open up its economy, open up, uh, you know, to a more free, to a capitalist democratic nation, uh, you know, and would build, you know, on what they have, then Russia wouldn't have a demographic problem. We have the same demographic problem that Russia has. Americans are not replacing themselves, right? So, you know, or at least that group of Americans that control America, white, white Americans are not replacing themselves, all right? Well, let, I, let, I mean, let's be careful on that, but... <laughs> but the point is, you well, know, I mean, we're I mean, not for, closing for example, our borders. We're, we're going to be a majority-minority country, whether it's 2030 or 2040, it's coming. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the wealthiest and most productive members of our society tend to be first and second generation immigrants, um, you know, we're a nation built on immigrants and, you know, you and I have gone back and forth on what the proper policies should be, but we all agree that it should be legal and, right. and coordinated right. and plan. And if we were letting in, you know, PhDs and grocery delivery guys, and that was our, you know, our barbell strategy is, you know, don't admit middle-class people. Well, fine. But, but the, the reality is, is America does not have the same problem Russia has. Maybe, maybe naturally born citizens are slowly going that direction, but we have an immigration um, a, a option that is really attractive and has, has helped our country over the last 200 and some odd years to continue to grow and be be a productive country. So I, I wouldn't compare them. And then going back to Egypt, man, Egypt, you, you're right. They do not have a lot of those natural resources, but they have a bunch of awesome other natural resources. Um and you know they're they're in a fortunate part of the of the world where they have the Nile River and they have all the beautiful coastline of Mediterranean. You know, I I could imagine myself wanting to be in Egypt, whereas I I've been to Russia. It's not someplace I dream of going back to. Um, so I, I'm rooting for Egypt. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, I, the, the point I'm making is exactly that we do have immigration and people do want to come here because. Why? Because we have an economy, we have a free society, we have all the benefits that people in the world really want, they find them here. And that's why they want to come here. And if these other countries would wake up, 
uh, and stop trying to gather all the power into a small number of people and say, okay, let's open it up. And, and China actually, I think, understands this as well as we do. Let's open it up to, you know, the world. They wouldn't have this demographic problem. Uh, it, it, it would be a totally different world. Um, and I think, you know, in the last week, we're moving toward that world and away from the world that, that you know, it seems to me we had been moving toward. Yeah, I mean, the immigrants that come to America, a huge proportion of them are responsible for the creation of new businesses. It's just a, an amazing number from hot dog vendors selling their hot dogs to an IT entrepreneurs and if we didn't have this uh these immigrants over the years we would be a lesser nation for it economically for sure yeah, well you know I, I always bring my family into it and i think back to when you know my family uh you know uh were illegal immigrants into the united states in the 1860s they uh opened up uh bars and they uh you know got involved in fights and they were um uh, you know there's a big dispute whether that book uh, gangs of new york uh, really relates to my grandfather and <laughs> uh, actually the, uh, the 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 papers at the time did nail my grandfather as being the guy right so they, they weren't the, the the best the most you know if you will uh this are Honorable? Coming honorable, <laughs> honorable is a good, another good word coming into this country, but they did what, you know, the country needed. They, they, everybody in the next generation, you know, we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have, you know. Uh, financial people, strategists. Financial strategists, you know, uh, so it's what Matt said. It's the second generation of these people, a third generation that comes along, um, you know, and they basically, um, you know, do what we want done for the country. Um I, I thought Gangs of New York was an Irish epic, um, but I guess there was Italians mixed in with them. It was Irish against the Italians. Okay. Italians versus and Irish. Then, that and then a, that kind of, apparently, the roots of the modern Democratic Party, apparently, yeah, yeah. are laid at, at that, that, that era. I can tell you the stories and spin your ears. But yeah, no. well, we'll, we'll do that for maybe a special episode. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, the problem with the problem with the problem with talking about history and you know saying the Democratic Party started you know at, at that point is you don't know where to draw the line because everything is a continual story from the thing that happened before it and you know this the history shows that empires don't last you know British Empire didn't last the Roman Empire didn't last our American Empire at some point won't last um, but like when do you begin to tell the story is always a really difficult you know thing I am curious though how you know your family was illegally immigrated in 1868 was was there a robust legal immigration process they bypassed or was are you just saying yes. everyone everyone was illegal at that point no 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 they didn't come in through ellis island uh yeah. ellis know, island wasn't a thing in the 1860s was yeah, it? No, it was yeah really yeah and and they they if you go to ellis island and look the names of people who came in in that period they aren't there and and i know why i mean you know the ship that they that uh, my great great grandfather was on sunk uh off of uh the jersey coast and uh they they were they were rescued and 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 came into the country um the way almost it, it's it's kind of analogous to these people who are trying to get into italy uh, or into uh you know turkey you know they come in boats and and fortunately my my great great grandfather worked on the suez canal uh, before he came here but the point is um 
they were not a whole bunch of uh, you know uh, doctors and lawyers who who, who uh, you know took a plane to uh, New York and and settled in in the country. It was totally different. Well, you, that's interesting to hear you say all this, Tick, because we have the phenomena of uh, <laughs> immigrants or people coming into America without documentation. But I've heard those stories too. You know, Italians, Irish came into America over the years without paperwork. And their sons, daughters, next generation, our professors, doctors, business people, and so on. You know, so we never really had a perfect immigration system in no, terms didn't. of processing, if you will. No, we didn't. But but Matt is right. It's got to be a legal system. I mean, you can't you can't just open the borders and 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 accept you know what what is happening. Although that's what happened back in the 1860s uh, in the Congress actually in the 1880s you know did pass legislation you know limiting uh, the amount of people who could come to this country from other countries uh, but it didn't work uh, it didn't work then it's not working now but it's the only way i think it is the right way to do it is to have it legal not illegal dick you you circulated over the weekend um picking us up on last week's uh, conversation about the supremacy or otherwise of the US dollar as the reserve, the global reserve currency. And you have some new data, which was really interesting. And I'm scratching my head and trying to get one take on it. And you probably have a different take. But according to your data, uh, the US money supply is a percent of the world money supply. It was near 90% in 1952, and by 2016, it was 20% approximately. Is that your case for, me, for saying the US dollar is losing its luster, it's losing its strength, its position as some kind of a reserve currency? Yeah, it is. I mean, basically, um, the International Monetary uh, Fund, you know, has something called International Financial Statistics, which I would get every month. I don't know, for about 30 years. And, and I stopped getting it in 2016 because, uh, you know, the company I worked for had no need for the information that de was developed there. But the point is that, uh, you know, what I would do with this information is I would take uh, the major countries in the world and I would dollarize their money supply. Uh, in other words, because it shows that this publication shows, you know, the, the, the value of the currency in the currency and the value of the currency in dollars. And I would just aggregate it, you know, I would show every year, you know, how much money, you know, was growing in each country around the world. And, you know, I would divide that into the US dollar. And what became apparent is that, you know, the whole world had changed, you know, and, and that the US dollar was not being used for transactions uh, everywhere in the world. And again, everything, you know, if you personalize it, it becomes more important. When I started going to Europe in the, in the early 1960s, there were still buildings in London that had been hit by the Blitz. I mean, and I didn't, I thought at the time that they kept them there just to get, make people remember what it was like, but they were there. You know, if you would go into the subway in, in Paris, which I did, you know, and get lost, you could talk to anybody because everybody spoke English, right? You know, there was no country that you could go to where they wouldn't accept the dollar. If you try to, you know, even in Turkey, you know, in Turkey, you know, wherever you go to the bazaar, you know, in Turkey, everybody spoke English, right? Everywhere you went, English was there, dollars were there, you know, the United States was there. That's not true anymore. 
you know, you, you go to these countries, you get lost in the Paris subway, you're going to stay lost because nobody can speak English. Uh, you know, if you try to use dollars, I mean, my, my daughters were just in England, uh, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they, they couldn't use dollars. You know, they, the, the people wouldn't accept them. Uh, you know, don't ask me why. I don't, maybe it's my daughters. Who knows? But the point is, you know, this is a different world. It's a world in which there are vibrant economies everywhere, and those vibrant economies are not reliant upon the United States. They don't speak English. They don't use the U.S. dollar, you know, for transactions. And that that's why I believe that the, the life of the U.S. dollar as the only reserve currency in the world is limited, and we're coming to the end of it. I mean, well, those, but, but, those sentences, the life of the U.S. dollar is limited and we're coming to the end of it, can be true whether it happens in the year 3000 or it happens in the year 2025. But but the idea that in 1950, 80% of the currencies in the world were the U.S. dollar, and and that was the year, you know, that was the middle of the decade of America, basically, um, you know, Korea came later, but, but Japan, Korea, um, all of Western Europe, um, the whole plan was to get them to be self-sufficient and productive. And almost every country in the world has had more productivity growth than the United States because they were recovering from wars and it worked. And America now is, is wealthier and in a much stronger position. And, and, you know, these anecdotes that people aren't using the, the dollars, well, they are for global trade, just not in their local currency when they go and buy a, a baguette in Paris. And, it, it, it's almost ridiculous to think that America is losing influence when I, you know, I travel all over the world and I, you know, I, as much as the French don't want to speak English, they speak, they know, they all know it. Every country in the world that has a functioning education system, primary education system teaches the home language and English, including India. And I, I when I was in India for a wedding, I was told that there are more Indians in India that speak English than there are Americans in America that speak English. You know, I, I just don't think these anecdotes add up to what you think they do because the America's influence, as much as we're hated, we're the only country that exports entertainment, really. I mean, I know there's other other countries, but we're something like 90% of exports. All the major movies that um, break records in China are from Hollywood. The local productions can't match. Same with Bollywood in India. Um, we export our technology we invent the phones we invent the internet we invent space travel we invent so many things that we don't import from other countries the idea that america's influence is waning i, I just don't buy it I, I it just doesn't it doesn't match the reality i agree that we have a debt crisis we have a demographic crisis we have a dollar crisis that you know eventually will will come but it i, I feel like the sky is falling is is not happening anytime soon I'm not yeah. saying the sky is falling. I'm saying that the sky is rising in a whole bunch of other places. I'm saying that, you know, America operated in an environment in which there was no competition because of uh, World War II and its devastation. And that's not the situation now that you got to forget that whole era. You're in an era in which there are multiple successful economies functioning and they are rising. And therefore, for one country to have control of that whole game, doesn't work in this environment it worked then it doesn't work now that was america's plan was to make everyone rich the, the yeah, yeah well we was... made them rich so yeah. now the issue is the world is different yes because they're rich they're not poor but the plan worked we should be happy yeah 
I'm not saying we should be happy. I'm just saying that you cannot control the game when you've got a whole bunch of rich countries that you're competing against, against a whole bunch of countries which are living on, you know, poverty and, and just trying to, to survive. And, and we have to adjust to that reality. And that reality it doesn't mean that we're not the strongest country in the world. We are. It doesn't mean we're not the richest country in the world. We are. It doesn't mean that this is the best country in the world to live in because of freedom and opportunity. We are. But the point is, there are other areas of opportunity in the world, not just the United States. Just for, I suppose, clarity also, Dick, uh, the US dollar is still the main currency held by the world's central banks, even though you're saying there's the globe is awash with other currencies and it diminishes the standing of the US dollar you know, in those rankings. But the greenback is the one used in trade. And by the way, if you go to Europe, you bring your credit card um, and it's your account is held in the US bank, It's they convert from the US dollars to the local currency. That's my understanding. Yeah, they do. They do. You know, you know, the, the there's a study that came out last week, um, which a fellow named Chris Tola, who who comes up with more stuff for this company than uh, you know <laughs> intellectually than you can imagine, it said that uh, this is a we are at a 25 year low in terms of the United States dollar being a reserve currency for other central banks around the world, um, which, which is fine. I mean, mm. I'm not saying it's disaster. I'm just saying that, you know, this is a reality and we've got to deal with it. Well, I think what you hit on um, a few, several times, the, the rising debt, 31.4 trillion national debt, uh, political instability, polarization, uh, our legal system, uh, education system, all the internal threats in America probably is the biggest threat many people would see to the standing of the US dollar because we fall apart. I mean, a lot of other things come apart too. But then, of course, the whole world's in, in a wash in debt as well. Yeah, I kind of feel, uh, you know, that there's two extremes here. There's your view and there's Matt's view. <laughs> with the United States are. And I unfortunately am more on Matt's side in this situation. I don't believe we're in deep trouble. I believe we're, we're in we've always had contention in this country and we always seem to you know do well and survive through it and i think we will now and i think we're on the cusp of doing it again uh, dick and matt a, a great conversation and and we'll be back next week for more stimulating conversation on the economy the banks and much more until then take care Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.